0: Well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 33 to 36. As we continue through this psalm, which is all about God's law, today we'll hear the psalmist asking God for teaching and for understanding and for leading and for the inclination of heart to obey God's law. And these requests that he has for God set a great example for us. Today we'll also look at a principle about God's law as it relates to sin. God's law reveals and restrains sin. And we'll look at a case law that will illustrate that principle for us as well. But we'll begin with these four verses that challenge us, I think, to have humility and to come to God asking him to incline our hearts to his law. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, to 36. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Well, let's just jump right in there with verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. As we've already seen several times before, the psalmist here asks God, again, to help him learn God's law. Teach me, O Lord. And that tells us that he recognizes his need for help. He might have the law, he might have great teachers, he might even have great intelligence, but he still needs spiritual sight in order to truly see. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says this, he says that his prayer for them is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Even though Paul is teaching them, he knows what they need is for the Spirit of God to teach them. Even on a bright sunny day, you need more than sunlight to see something. You actually need the faculty of sight in your eyes. A blind person can't see even on a sunny day, and we are spiritually blind unless the Spirit gives us sight. God's pleased with that request by the way when you ask him for teaching when Solomon was king God told him to ask for whatever he wanted what was it that Solomon said he said give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern discern between good and evil for who's able to govern this your great people and then we're told it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Asking God to teach you is one way to please the Lord. Now, what does it mean that the psalmist will keep God's law to the end? Well, I do think it means to the end of his life or perseverance in obeying God's law, but I think it also carries the idea of to the end of the law. In other words, full obedience, nothing held back. As Charles Spurgeon says, never drawing a line and saying to obedience, hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. Instead, keeping God's law to the end is complete and full obedience, holding nothing back. Well, verse 34 says, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Notice that the understanding that the psalmist asks for leads to keeping God's law. That's because this kind of spiritual understanding has an impact on our affections, on our loves and our desires. Spurgeon again writes that the understanding operates upon the affections. It convinces the heart of the beauty of the law so that the soul loves it with all its power. And then it reveals the majesty of the lawgiver, and the whole nature bows before his supreme will. A lot of Christians like to focus on the heart, the emotions, but not on the mind, the understanding. So they seek an emotional experience with God, often through something like emotionally driven worship music, And there's nothing wrong with the emotions per se, but the emotions are to be driven along by the understanding. And more than that, Christians are to learn to have an understanding of God's law that leads to obedience. The psalmist also says in this verse that he will observe God's law with my whole heart. We like to think that we are wholeheartedly following Christ and obeying God's law, but we do tend to hold some things back. Thomas Manton, and by the way, you've heard me throughout this series quote him a lot. There's a reason for that. He's a Puritan writer and he uh, wrote 100, well, he gave 190 sermons on Psalm 119. So he's someone who thought very deeply about it and I've appreciated his thoughts as I've been reading through that over the last year. So that's why you hear me sharing things from him quite a bit. But helpfully, I think he writes here that the whole man is God's, By every kind of right and title. And therefore, when he requires the whole heart, he does but require that which is his own. It's his. It's right for him to require it. Your whole heart belongs to God. For him to say that we should obey his law wholeheartedly is simply to say what ought to be. When God told King Saul... To completely destroy the Amalekites, Saul, to our way of thinking, almost completely obeyed. He just used common sense to keep back some of the animals for sacrifice. I mean, why waste them? Sacrifice pleases God anyway. And he spared the king. I mean, that could be useful. But it wasn't complete obedience. He didn't obey wholeheartedly. So, when Samuel confronted him about it, so you know, he says to Saul, why didn't you obey what God said? And Saul says, I did obey. And Samuel detailed then how he had not truly obeyed. And Samuel said this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to lis- listen than the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul did not obey God's word with his whole heart. And the Lord counted that as disobedience and rebellion. Manton again challenges us. If you give him the whole world and do not give him your heart, you dishonor him and set something else before him. Obedience to God's law is obedience with your whole heart. Verse 35, then, we read, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. So the psalmist asks that God would lead him in the path of his commandments. The way of obedience is like a path to follow, it's a way of life, it's a a well worn trail that has been followed by thousands before you. And we've read this verse before, even recently, but it's worth sharing again. Jeremiah 6:16. 6, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. James Montgomery Boyce points out that as Christians, we are not innovators, but imitators. We live in an age of innovation Everyone is taken with the latest and greatest, the newest thing, the newest phone, the newest car, the newest technology in every area, it seems. But the Christian life is one of following a well-worn path. It's an ancient path of God's law. It's been followed by faithful Christians for thousands of years before us. It's not innovation, but imitation. And again, the psalmist is looking to God to lead him. As he asked God for teaching and understanding in the previous verses, here he asks God to lead him. So Manton writes, We need not only light to know our way, but a heart to walk in it. Direction is necessary because of the blindness of our minds, and the effectual impulsions of grace are necessary because of the weakness of our hearts. The humility of the psalmist as he encounters God's law should be an example to us. Looking to God for teaching, for understanding, for leading, and in the next verse, for a change of heart. Verse 36 Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The psalmist asks God to incline his heart toward God's testimonies. That tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells you that your heart has an inclination. And it tells you that God can change that inclination. He does that without violating our will. By his grace, he inclines our heart. Our hearts are naturally inclined against God. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Dan Estes explains the human heart defaults toward evil, so it must be directed toward what is right. God gives us a new heart, but we still have a sin nature and our heart must have some object of desire, we naturally lean towards sinful things. Here the psalmist mentions particularly selfish gain or covetousness, a focus on material things, a discontentment with the condition that God has given you. Spurgeon says the only way to keep out worldly gain is to put in its place the testimonies of the Lord. Jesus told us something similar. He said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what will rule your heart? What will your heart be inclined toward? You know, we have a lot of examples in scripture of people whose hearts were inclined toward selfish gain. Gehazi, uh, Elisha's servant, lied to Naaman in order to gain the reward that had been offered to Elisha. Achan took the spoils of Jericho and ended up bringing death to his family. Judas paid Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Ananias and Sapphira held back part of their property and then lied about it to the elders of the church and lied to the Holy Spirit. Often, material things can get a death grip on our hearts. Thomas Manton reminds us that covetousness or an inordinate desire of worldly things is the great hindrance to complying with God's testimonies. So our prayer should be like the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple when he says, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. So in these verses, we've seen the psalmist telling God that he wants to follow God, God's law with his whole heart, all the way to the end. But we also noted that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We need God to incline our hearts toward him. Part of the process of learning to follow him with our whole heart is to learn the reality of sin. Sin. And that's a big part of what the law does. The principle that we're going to see this morning is this. God's law reveals and restrains sin. God's law reveals and restrains sin. We'll spend most of our time, the rest of our time this morning, thinking about this idea. And then at the end, we'll look briefly at a case law that will illustrate for us one of the functions of the law In regard to sin. Now, throughout the series, we've talked about how the law shows us the character of God. It's the transcript of his character. Greg Bonson helps us to see one more thing, then, that this means. The law shows all men what God is like and what he demands. So if the if the law shows you who God is, his character then places demands on us his creatures because the law shows us who God is it also shows us what he requires of us and it's not just what God requires in your mind or in your heart but what he requires in society as well so the law serves as a description of what it looks like when God's holiness is lived out in society And anything that falls short of that standard is what we call sin. Now, traditionally, at least in our tradition, we identify three uses of the law. Now, it depends on which source you're looking at as to which ones get called one, two, and three, what order they're put in. If you look at Calvin, for example, the way he orders it is different from the way the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Second London Confession orders those things. So I'm gonna walk through these this morning in the order that the confessions give, even though a lot of people tend to use the language that Calvin gave us with this. But the first use of the law is for sanctification. We're using the law as a rule of life. And I'm not gonna spend time on this one this morning because this really isn't our focus and we've talked a lot about it in previous weeks. I'll just summarize. Believers use the law to understand god's will and their duty it also shows them where they fall short and while the law doesn't condemn us believers because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus the law does show us where we need to repent and seek forgiveness it helps us to see our need our dependence on christ calvin says believers profit from the law in that it both shows them god's will and it motivates them to obedience. In other words, when we learn God's law, when we see God's character, we should, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, delight in God's law and desire to obey it. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is conviction. And this is where we're going to spend a good chunk of time. This is the law's function of conviction of sin. And I'm using that term conviction even though what's really in this is broader than that. And you'll see that. Uh, I'm going to, in a moment, give you five aspects of this particular use of the law. Okay? Rob Ventura writes, When serving in this capacity then, the law convicts men of sin by becoming a mirror that reflects man's sinful condition in light of God's holiness and moral standards. So the law in this function reveals to the sinner both what God's standard is and how they fall short. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 3, verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Seeing the law reveals how you've sinned against God. And this is a necessary step for someone coming to Christ, for salvation. You have to first recognize your need for a savior. And that need is there because you are a sinner. The law shows you just how you're a sinner. Calvin comments here regarding the pride of the sinner. He says, so long as he is permitted to appeal to his own judgment, he substitutes a hypocritical for a real righteousness. In other words, we tend to set up our own standards. And so we think we're righteous because we are by our own standards. But after he is forced to weigh his conduct in the balance of the law, renouncing all dependence on this fancied righteousness, he sees that he is at an infinite distance from holiness. And on the other hand, that he teems with innumerable vices of which he formerly seemed free. In other words, the law puts the sinner in his place. The sinner wants to be judged according to his own standard. I I did what I believe was right. I followed my truth. But the law of God is the only standard. And when the sinner sees himself in light of God's law, everything changes. So what exactly does the law do in regard to sin in this second use of the law? Let me give you five things, okay? The first one, first, the law defines sin. We know what sin is because of the law. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter four, he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. He he doesn't say that because there actually is some place where there's no law. He's simply saying that we know what transgression is because it's a violation of the law. That's what defines sin. William Ames, one of the early Puritans, says it very simply. He says, sin is a deviation from the law of God. That's what sin is. And John Owen Another Puritan explains it this way. He says, sin is our inconformity to God and his holiness expressed in the particular commands of the law. The nature of all sin, therefore, consists in its enmity, its inconformity to the rule. A modern writer, Ken Gentry, writes this. He says, without God's law, we cannot properly understand what sin is. How can there be an ethical violation if there is no ethical standard? Some sort of law is necessary as a criterion for distinguishing sin from righteousness. He goes on, Adam chose the law of his own mind to determine right and wrong. But God himself is and must always be the ultimate standard of righteousness. God must define sin. And he does so in Scripture. And there we learn the significance of God's law in this regard. So how does Scripture describe this? Let me just give you two examples. John says it this way. He says, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawless. Any deviation from God's law, that's what sin is. And in Romans 4, Paul quotes Psalm 32. And he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered lawless deeds are sin they need to be forgiven so the law defines sin for us the second thing here is that the law convicts of sin the law convicts of sin remember what the law is it's the revelation of God's character and what that character demands of us Johnson writes, by setting before man the objective standards of God's holiness, the law convicts man of his sinful rebellion by contrast. If we see the holiness of God in his law, we can't help but see how we are different. We fall short of God's glory. Listen to what James says about the effect of looking at God's law. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." So the law is like a mirror because it shows us the reality of our flaws. That's one of the reasons that you look in a mirror, is to see the flaws that are there so that you can do something about them. Well, when you look at the purity and the holiness of God seen in his law, you're convicted of your own sinfulness. So Edward Elton says, it is by the majestic demands of the law of God seen in his law, or excuse me, demands of the law of God, that men are brought to see the rebellions of their hearts, to be sin. We innately know that we're supposed to meet a standard. We have a sense of right and wrong. We have a conscience, regardless of whether that conscience is seared or darkened, but As sinners, we don't want to accept the standard of God's holiness expressed in his law. R.J. Rushduni explains the condition of the sinner. He says the sinner always feels himself to be under judgment. If he knows no other verse of scripture, he will know and quote Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. I had somebody quote that to me a week ago. He wants to eliminate judgment from the world. His efforts are a failure because God's handiwork and law are written in all of creation. In every atom of man's being, the sinner finds that he himself is the great and authentic haunted house wherein the law of God cries out from the stones and boards thereof. He's saying we can't escape God's law. And when we look directly at his law, like looking in a mirror, we are convicted of our sin. So not only does the law define sin and convict sinners of their sin, the third thing is that it rightly condemns them for that sin. Paul writes in Galatians 3 that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And in Romans 3, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. When the law is seen, then the penalties of the law are seen as well. Violating God's holy character has consequences. And the law reveals this truth. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, Every sin both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, does in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death, with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Jesus himself emphasized this in his Sermon on the Mount, his exposition of God's law. He says that on Judgment Day, many will find themselves condemned because they have violated the law. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Getting a clear vision of the law takes away any argument one might have against God's justice. Francis Turretin wrote, If there be such an attribute as justice, belonging to God, then sin must have its due, which is punishment. I had a conversation with someone recently about this. And this person couldn't get past the idea that God would send many people to hell, in his estimation, simply because they were born in the wrong place and grew up with the wrong religion. And I tried to explain the idea that God's holiness demands that he act with justice against violations of his law. Uh, Sometimes that's hard in the abstract. So I tried to kind of bring it down to a personal level and say, if you were violently attacked by someone, should there be a consequence for that? See, when it's our own person that is violated, we can easily see that there should be a just punishment. Well, how much more so when it is God's person and God's character that are violated? Joel Beeky writes that the law shuts the mouths of the wicked when they stand before God. There is no defense, there is no argument, no manipulation, no deceit. The law describes God's holiness. It does not describe the wicked and so they are guilty. So the law defines sin. It condemns men. It convicts us of sin. It condemns men for sin. And fourth, and this one may sound strange, it provokes sin. The law provokes sin. Greg Bonson summarizes what scripture has to say. He's using scripture's language here to describe this function of the law. He says, the law also exposes the true character of sin for sin takes hold of the law and induces transgression. The law provokes sin, calls forth transgression. Sin is aroused by the law. It finds opportunity for rebellion in the commandment. And then he goes on to say the very power of sin is the law. So the law convicts man of sin and shows the true nature of rebellion. It excites transgression and spurs sin on to further disobedience. What what does that mean? What is that getting at? Well, this is something that scripture clearly teaches. Here's just two of the verses that speak of this, both from Romans chapter 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then Paul goes on a few verses later to explain. He says, did that which is good then, and when he says that which is good, he's referring to the law. So he says, does that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law provokes sin in that the sinner seeing the law rebels against it and sins more. The Puritans were often described as physicians of the soul because they seemed to have particular insight often into the various facets of sin in our hearts. One of them, William Strong, gave the imagery here of a beast that is chained up. And he says, it's not that the chains put fierceness into the beast, but the chaining of the beast draws out the fury that was already there in its nature. That's what the law does. In the same vein, Vavazor Powell used the imagery of a dog in a kennel to describe sin. He says, encountering the law serves to unkennel sins and make them take hold upon a man's soul. Now, I want to be clear here, it's important for us to see that the law has no power to save. It points out sin, it convicts, it condemns, but it cannot solve the sin problem. Rush Dooney explains, the fact that the law cannot save us is not due to some inability in the law, but an inability in us. We are dead in sin, dead to life in God. The fact that the law incites us to sin is an indictment of us, not of the law. In a regenerate man, the law incites to righteousness. So what we see in Psalm 119, when you hear the psalmist over and over describing how he delights in God's law, he loves God's law, that's the effect that the law should have on a regenerate person. It incites him to righteousness, but for the unbeliever, it incites them to more sin. Before we leave this point, I want to pause and point out what is the solution to the sin problem. And I'm going to enlist the help of John Bunyan to do that. As John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he has a scene in that story where Christian comes to the house of interpreter. And one room of the house, Bunyan writes, was a very large parlor that was full of dust, having never been swept. Now, after he had observed this scene for a little while, interpreter called for a man to commence sweeping. And as a result, the dust began to fly about so overwhelmingly that Christian was nearly choked to death. Interpreter immediately spoke to a gracious lady standing nearby, bring some water here and sprinkle this room. The lady having done this, the parlor was then easily swept and cleansed. Now, when Christian asked what this meant, Interpreter explained, This parlor is the heart of a man who has never been sanctified or regenerated and justified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have thoroughly defiled the whole man. Now catch this. He who first began to sweep is the law. But the gracious lady who brought water and sprinkled the room is the gospel. Now, while you saw, as soon as the man began to sweep, that the dust so swirled about the room that it became even more difficult to cleanse and you were near choked to death, this is to show you that the law, instead of effectively cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse, give greater strength to and cause sin to flourish in the soul. And this result is in spite of the fact that the law both uncovers and condemns sin, for it does not have the power to subdue. Furthermore, as you saw the gracious lady sprinkle the room with water, which it was very easily cleansed, this is to show you that when the gospel comes, with its sweet and precious influences indwelling the heart, then, just as you saw the lady settle the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the heart made clean through the faith of that soul. And consequently, that same soul is then made a suitable place for the king of glory to inhabit. The law cannot solve the sin problem. Only the gospel does that. But that does not pit the law and the gospel against each other. Rather, they both agree as to the holiness of God and the demands that that places on man. And the law, rightly understood, should lead us to Christ. That's the fifth part of this second use of the law. The law drives sinners to Christ. Seeing the holiness of God displayed in the law leaves man in a dilemma. Ken Gentry writes, the law causes them to despair of their own righteousness so that they might seek the righteousness of another, Christ the Lord. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who walks according to the spirit? Well, those who have been given the spirit because they have faith in Christ. Faith in Christ leads to justification, or said another way, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us who have faith. See, this answers the demand of the law. So in this way, it's the law that drives us to Christ. Calvin said this, he says, In the precepts of the law, God is seen as the rewarder only of perfect righteousness, a righteousness of which all are destitute. And on the other hand, as the stern avenger of wickedness. But in Christ, his countenance beams forth full of grace and gentleness toward poor, unworthy sinners. When the law drives a sinner to Christ, the sinner finds there grace and mercy. He finds the gracious gift of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ that satisfies the demands of the law. Gentry summarizes this function of the law this way. He says, since it cannot save, the law drives men to Christ by removing all hope in self and by threatening the eternal wrath of God against sinners, the law is the instrument by which the sinner is driven to Christ to secure his mercy. So in this second use of the law, the law defines sin, it convicts men of sin, it condemns men for their sin, it provokes sin in the unbelieving man, and it drives men to Christ who alone can satisfy the demands of the law. And then finally is the third use of the law, and that is to restrain sin. When someone looks at God's law, sees the demands of the law, and the consequences for breaking the law, that's an incentive not to break the law. Sometimes the law provokes sin, especially in the heart, like coveting. But particularly in society, out in public, on a public level, the law restrains sin. Ventura writes, when functioning in this manner, the law serves as a barricade or a bridle that restrains men from sin. Or as the Scottish preacher John Calhoun puts it, a curb to hold sinners within the limits of external decency and to prevent the world from becoming a scene of robbery and blood. And while this certainly has a positive effect on the sinner himself, like the patience of God that stems from his kindness toward us, giving us a chance to repent, The main benefit here is for the society. It keeps society from self destruction. Greg Bonson writes The law represses the rampage of sin in a person's life and in society. It halts the sinner with the authoritative demand of God, even if only for a little while. So the law has a certain preservative effect even when it's not a sanctifying one in the life of sinners. The threatenings and punishments of the law, specifically when they're enforced by the civil magistrate, holds the wickedness of lawbreakers in check in society. So John Calvin in the city of Geneva worked toward having a godly society. He was someone who really gave a lot of thought to this idea. He described it like this. He says, The law is, by means of its fearful denunciations and consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Such persons are curbed not because their mind is inwardly moved and affected, but because As if a bridle were laid upon them, they refrained their hands from external acts and internally checked the depravity which would otherwise petulantly burst forth. Nevertheless, he says, this forced and extorted righteousness is necessary for the good of society. Its peace being secured by a provision, but for which all things would be thrown into tumult and confusion. So it's this third use of the law, restraining evil, that our case law illustration this morning will give us a picture of. We've said this morning that the law reveals and restrains sin, and we've seen three main uses of the law. First, sanctification, or a rule of life for the believer. Second, the conviction of sin and all that goes along with that. And third, restraining sin especially in the society at large. For the last few minutes this morning, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19. And we're going to start in verse 15. And what you're going to find here is a particular law about perjury, giving false witness in any kind of case. And once we read it, I'll give a basic explanation. And then I want us to focus on the effect of the law In regard to sin as we've been talking about this morning. So Deuteronomy 19 and follow along with me starting in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So this law is an application, first of all, of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That commandment is repeated in the New Testament as well. For example, Jesus gives this as a requirement when he's talking to the rich young ruler. The requirement in verse 15 to have two witnesses is to ensure justice so that mistakes aren't made or so that somebody doesn't like intentionally lie to get somebody else in trouble. If you were falsely accused of a crime and there was a witness and that witness was mistakenly or falsely saying that they saw you do it, you would want this requirement to be in place of two or three witnesses. Now in verses 16 to 19, we have the law's requirement of what should be done with a false witness. First, there's a thorough investigation. And if it's demonstrated that this was false witness, then there's a mandatory punishment that the law requires. And the punishment is that whatever penalty was under consideration for the person who was falsely accused, that same punishment now applies to the false witness. So if this was a case of theft, like we talked about a few weeks ago, um, theft of a bull, then the person who was bearing false witness now has to make restitution of five bulls or that amount of money. Or if this was a capital case, it was a murder case, let's say, and someone is found to be a false witness, that person is to be executed. They get the penalty that was under consideration when they gave false witness. Why does God take this offense, false witness, so seriously? In God's law, perjury is a form of blasphemy. When God speaks of profaning his name, we call that blasphemy. So now we're, we have the ninth commandment, but we're also tying in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Listen to what Leviticus 19.12 says. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So when a person serves as a witness... They swear by God's name to tell the truth. Now, even if they don't formally swear by God's name, they're still bearing public testimony in a courtroom or otherwise. And God, as the one who's perfectly just and sets up all of the laws of justice by which we're supposed to live, he tells us not to bear false witness. God treats any kind of testimony as having been given in his name. Because he's the God of truth so to do that falsely is to profane his name it's blasphemy you can see that illustrated in our text in verse 17 in that both parties of the dispute are then called to appear before the Lord which means to appear before his representatives the priests and the judges God's system ensures justice the application of the lex talionis principle an eye for an eye to the false witness is giving you perfectly just and balanced results it's true equity it objectively ensures justice so in verse 20 then we find the aspect of this case law that illustrates our principle today Remember, our principle is that the law reveals and restrains sin. The third use of the law we looked at was that of restraining sin, particularly on the social level. Well, in verse 20, we read that the effect of faithfully executing God's standard regarding a false witness will be that the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. In other words, this is a deterrent. It's a social restraint of the sin of bearing false witness. When the justice system punishes a false witness according to God's standard, giving them the penalty that under consideration for the person falsely accused, that serves as a social restraint, a deterrent against someone bearing false witness. God's law is designed to work this way. Here's how Gary DeMar explains this. He says, The perjurer will certainly think twice about offering false testimony if he knows that he will incur the same punishment as the accused if his lie is uncovered. This law is especially helpful in capital offenses, where punishment for the crime, the death penalty, is irreversible. Moreover, A number of trivial cases often are brought to the courts to harass an individual and later they're thrown out for lack of evidence. Such cases would be reduced considerably if the accuser knew he could be liable for the same charges were his charges proved false and malicious. This seems to be what Paul is saying to Timothy when he writes to Timothy and he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So he has in mind a function of the law for the the non believer here. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So in this sense, the law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient. It's a restraint against sin. When they consider the penalties... They choose to avoid the sin in order to avoid the penalty. In our example, they don't bear false witness because the stakes are too high. So the law has served as a social restraint against sin. We also have to take note of verse 21, however. Sometimes in God's law, in other places, The penalty that's given is a maximum penalty and the judge has discretion to give a lesser penalty, but not here. Not in the case of a false witness. Verse 21 specifically says, Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is a mandatory penalty. There's no wiggle room for the judge. If someone commits false witness, they are to be given the full penalty that was under consideration for the the person who's falsely accused. Even if that means execution because it was a capital offense. Why? Because this law is a social restraint against sin and God knows that the damage done to society by not enforcing this penalty is greater. Remember, this is an offense against God. Perjury is blasphemy and a society that will not take that seriously is a society that is in decline and on its way toward collapse. Hopefully you can see in this case law why God takes false witness seriously. And and by the way, that should filter down to lots of other areas. Kids, you should be very careful about making false accusations about your siblings, about other kids. God takes that very seriously. Adults, we should be very cautious about things like gossip. That's bearing false witness if what you're sharing is not true. And I hope you also see that one of the very important legitimate purposes of the law is this social restraint on sin. God cares about the society. His law is not simply a private affair designed to help your spiritual life. God's law is for all of life because he's the Lord of all. In our verses in Psalm 119 this morning, we saw the psalmist asking again and again for God to help him in understanding and faithfully obeying God's law. One of the ways God's law helps us is by revealing and restraining sin. We as a society need God's help if we're ever going to return to a social order in which we honor him by obeying his law. God takes his word seriously for individuals and for the society. And we should take it seriously too. May God teach us and give us understanding so that we can walk in the way of his testimonies, so that our hearts are inclined to his law. Lord, as we consider these words that we've seen this morning, In Psalm 119 and from these other places in your word that all teach us about your law, we want to echo the words of the psalmist. We want to ask you to teach us. We, We can learn from books and authors and all of those things are important, but ultimately we need your spirit to open our eyes and to change our hearts, to incline our hearts to your testimonies. I pray that you would be developing in us as your people a love for your law, a delight in it. That that would be the response we have when we hear your law, that we, would, that we would see you in it and that we would glorify you and that we would want to obey your law because it's pleasing to you. It's the best way to live. Help us to learn to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name, amen.